Joy Gorman Weddles is the founder of Joy Coalition, an impact producing venture with a focus on creating purpose driven film and television content for a global audience. She executive produced the newly released Unprisoned and is currently working on a multi part storytelling ecosystem inspired by landmark civil rights documentary Eyes on the Prize. Her body of work includes the critically acclaimed series Home Before Dark, the influential 13 Reasons Why series, and the film The Meddler. She serves on the advisory council for UCLA's Center for Scholars and Storytellers and the advisory board for Hollywood Health and Society at USC. As part of their commitment to social change, Joy Coalition works in collaboration with the Office of the Surgeon General in response to the youth mental health crisis. She's accepted a Sentinel Award, Television Academy Honors for Advancing Social Change, in the 2018 Mental Health America Media Award. Joy Gorman-Weddles, welcome to The Creative Process. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on the premiere of Unprisoned, which is not the usual story when one is dealing with the formerly incarcerated re-emerging into society. The angle is usually they come in for a final score, they get tempted back into the life. But this focuses on the positive and also what's often neglected on what happens to the families during and after incarceration. These are often ignored by the storylines that we've seen on film and television. So you just tell us about that process and why it was important for it to be authentic and positive. Well, with Unprisoned and with really my whole body of work as a producer, I'm really drawn to stories that make people feel seen, that take issues that have stigma and shame attached to them. And I hate using the word normalize, but making those issues just more palatable and more human. And do people realize that 50% of American families are touched by incarceration? And when you meet someone like Tracy McMillan, who really is a miracle, this is a woman who's now in her 50s, who grew up in 22 different foster homes because her father was incarcerated when she was so little. And yet, for all of his mistakes, the fact that he was a career criminal, he still, when he could, changed her diapers. He was present when he could be there. He braided her hair and there was real love there. But they were separated not only by his mistakes, but by a system that is really unforgiving and really unfair, especially to black and brown men. So the idea that we could tell a story where a young woman who was raised that way and by that person turns out to be Kerry Washington, you know, turns out to be somebody who you want to be, turns out to be Olivia Pope, this woman that we all see as so beautiful and such a hero and so strong and so powerful. I felt was just an incredible opportunity. And when we first put Tracy and Carrie in the same room, Carrie said to Tracy, you know, you're a miracle, right? And I don't think it really hit Tracy before that moment that when you really look at the data, when you look at the foster to prison pipeline, over 80% of males who age out of foster care end up incarcerated. So there are two broken systems that work hand in hand here. And we have the opportunity of a real success story. A woman who is a brilliant writer, is a relationship expert, knows how to write television and survive this upbringing and reunited with her father. And of course, the show is fictionalized 
And her dad didn't actually come and live with her. But we really tried to not only explore how a family can heal and how you can love someone who made a lot of mistakes, but how you have to have boundaries and heal yourself. So as much as we were exploring how a family heals and how they learn a new version of how to be a family. We also explore the necessity of boundaries. You know, how much do you have to accept and forgive when your parents have made mistakes your whole life? How do you make choices that keep you safe when it took so much to become a success? Something that I love about Tracy and also about Paige as a character is that she tries so hard to be perfect. She's so type A and she has all the advice for other people, but she herself has not yet been able to find a healthy love. And it's really an exploration of what are the boundaries? What's too much and what's not enough? And the question we ask at the end of the series is, who do you want to be? And that's a hard question to answer. And so what we hoped by putting Edwin out into the world of popular culture is to have more people see that uncle, that father of your friend, that brother who got in trouble with the law and spent time in prison to see all the possibilities of who that person can be. Who do we want to be as citizens of our community to help re-entering citizens thrive and survive and be able to heal and love with their families. Exactly. That is controversial for some people who haven't been impacted. But I can see, like, why wouldn't you want to give those who are re-entering society the best chance at being productive and be able to contribute? Welcome them back into the workforce. The show is also about resilience, healing, how we find our way forward, this father-daughter relationship, but also mothers as well. Yeah, and it's about redefining what a mother is, too. We don't explore her actual mother in the show, but she has sort of a string of mothers and mother figures. And what does that mean for a woman in her 40s who is a mother, you know? Yeah, and it's so interesting that the Delroy Lindo character, he has this quiet, relaxed authority. There's a great balance because they're both great actors, very relaxed. You can believe that relationship and how she has to exercise tough love and set those boundaries and, you know, find that place of forgiveness. So a lot of these things that are going on and then understanding to what extent, no matter how strong you are and how you found that resilience, and maybe it was by shutting off your feelings, to understand the many complex ways in which trauma, and particularly early childhood trauma, affects you throughout your life. You never quite get over it. You just learn Mm -hmm. how to maybe ignore it, just work your way through it. It's so true. We joked in making the show that Video Village was a group therapy session every day because Tracy has so much wisdom from having to do so much work to recover from her own childhood trauma. And it also makes you realize how many of us who came to Hollywood to be storytellers are pushing through with some pretty crazy stuff that we lived through. But what you'll see in the course of the series is how much Paige wants to protect her son from that generational trauma and how she struggles with thinking that keeping her father away from him is the answer when really giving him that chance to be a grandfather figure may be what brings a true healing. And so it's also posing that question is like, 
what does heal you? Yeah, and Edwin Delroy-Lindo, he's complex. He has a lot of wisdom. He has things to share because often, as you say, there's stigmatism or there's this sense of mistrust that we don't realize that some people, you mentioned the foster to prison pipeline. People are born into circumstances where they find themselves incarcerated. They made certain choices, but some choices were made for them. And so it's not an easy choice. They find themselves. So there's a lot of things that we have to value, as you've mentioned, this statistic is just incredible that 50% of people have been directly or indirectly affected by incarceration. So how do we find and value and nurture the good qualities of those who have been incarcerated to make sure it doesn't just continue this endless cycle? Some of the storylines explore that, but to truly understand how hard it is just to get your driver's license, he has to go back to where he was born and get a birth certificate to try to get a driver's license. The amount of red tape that you have to push through to re-enter society and thrive, it really is no surprise why the system has created a cycle of folks going back. And it's why, for me, I've just been drawn to the heroes of these stories for a long time. I used to, with my friend Scott Budnick, who started the Anti-Recidivism Coalition, I used to go to juvenile prisons and volunteer with those young men. And you see these kids who are put away at 12 and 13 years old. I mean, what is the path for that child? Rejected by your family, rejected by your community. Just there's so little hope there. And so I became drawn to stories of hope of men who were in that situation. My friend Chris Wilson, I helped him sell a book called The Master Plan, where he was put away for murder when he was 16 years old and he was in prison for life. And he wrote a bucket list. He wrote a master plan when he was 18 about what he was going to try to achieve. And he was one of those exceptional stories. And he's now a really successful artist and entrepreneur who spends most of his time giving back to the community and hiring other re-entering citizens. Our friend Lewis Reed, who consulted on Delroy's character, he's senior director for Van Jones Dream Corps, and he was 15 years incarcerated. And I see these people who had made one mistake, and usually it was to survive in whatever situation you were born into. And the folks who are these exceptional stories, who turn it around, in such an unbelievable way that they can then coach and help 650,000 other people. With Lewis, our consultant who helped Delroy with his character, he has worked on so much policy change with Van Jones, with Cut 50 and Reform Alliance. And you can't even quantify the amount of work that still needs to be done, but that has been done by the gentleman who survived the system and devoted themselves to redemption and giving back to the community. And Edwin is not yet, who knows how many seasons we have. He might build something great, but we haven't created Edwin to be somebody that does that work. But to do that work, to see a man, especially with Delroy's grace and talent, just the pride he wants to find like a job at the Parmesan Garden cooking and how hard that is for him to achieve. That's a lot of the U.S. population. As folks feel seen. Our friends who have dads and cousins and brothers and uncles and moms in prison feel seen. And it creates a real conversation about how 
we as an audience can act and help and change policy. Exactly. And second chances is really important. We have to open our hearts and our minds to that. And we've done a number of interviews with people who have programs around arts and different programs about second chances and within prisons. And their testimonies have said that we should speak about inspiring figures. Someone on death row who had their sentence commuted since is being full of hope and being the one who gives hope to others. And so I can't imagine, but how can you not want to support those kind of initiatives? How can you turn your back on something that's affected so many? And so I just really love this lightness of touch and also the fact it's a Black family. And of course, you touch on this being said in Minnesota and Black Lives Matter is mentioned. But at the same time, it feels like they could be from any background. It's not something that I can't see myself in their relationship, but these are just families. These are just people. There's not a sense that it doesn't apply to me, that there's this is an experience that I can't learn from. I agree. And incarceration disproportionately affects Black families. And that is something that we all need to take very seriously and work on. And so that is a huge piece of the work. And it's, I think, a big piece of the work of Onyx Collective as a new network label under Hulu and in the Disney family, putting more positive, complex, layered Black characters in premium shows with high budgets is just really, really crucial. It's really crucial to how folks are understood and perceived and stories are empathy machines. We in Hollywood, I believe, have a real responsibility. We're certainly not nearly the most important job in the country, but we are the most visible. And so we better be doing things right because if too many people see a misrepresentation of folks, then we haven't used our power for good. And we're so lucky to have Evently Bowser as our showrunner who came on board. We developed this with Carrie and Tracy and Pilar Savoni, who runs Carrie's company. We developed the show over the course of quarantine. It was the beginning of quarantine that we had our first meeting. It was March of 2020. And then when it got closer to the point of being able to actually order the series, ABCS told us that Yvette Lee Bowser might be available. And Yvette just won the WGA Patty Shayevsky Award on Sunday for just being such a groundbreaking voice in television. She was the first Black female showrunner in TV history and the youngest. And she created Living Single at 27 years old. Living Single was the precursor to Friends. Friends was completely like living single with white people. And to have someone of a vet stature who's devoted her whole life to positive representation of Black folks and Black women and creating those characters. She worked on a different world and was one of these 20-something girls writing for the first time about historically Black colleges. And that show changed how many kids went to historically Black colleges. It had a huge cultural impact in the 90s. And they've even just done a study on Yvette's show, Living Single, about how many Black women became attorneys because of the character Maxine Shaw, played by Erica Alexander. That one out of four Black women attorneys in a sample said that Maxine Shaw was the reason they became an attorney. So you can have such an important effect on the culture if you put not just positive representations, but just authentic representations of people in our stories. 
I can definitely see that with Paige, the Kerry Washington character, as also being authentic because she, at some point, she doesn't tell everyone how, you know, her childhood, how she was impacted. And just having that be, look, I'm strong, I'm independent, and I came from this. And maybe that makes me more resilient or able to help people. So it's really important because, as you say, there's this veil of shame. It just all gets swept under the carpet. And you've done mm -hmm. that with your different programs. I want to mention Eyes on the Prize to talk about some of these things, 13 Reasons Why. These are other things that are often dealt with teenage suicide and interesting and important show for breaking the silence. And tell us a little bit about that and Eyes on the Prize and some of the other issues and important stories that you've been involved in and you brought to the screen. Well, I think 13 Reasons was the first groundbreaking piece that I had a real hand in, in terms of reaching a global audience. I made some really wonderfully critically acclaimed indie films with some of the most brilliant directors like Lorene Scafaria, who directed Hustlers. But with 13 Reasons Why, I don't think we ever could have quantified the power of Netflix at that time to drop a show in 190 countries at once. And we knew how important it was. And Brian Yorkie, our showrunner, my producing partners, Crystal and Mandy, who's the mom of Selena Gomez and Selena, we knew that this was necessary. This book had been published in 35 languages. It was on and off the bestseller list for 10 years. It was getting banned in schools all the time. And I'm big on you ban a book that kids love. I'm probably going to come and adapt it. I'm probably going to come after it because adults fail children all the time because we are afraid of their feelings. We are afraid of what they can get themselves into until it's too late. And we're avoidant as a culture with them. And we've also left them a pretty screwed up world where they're living in a terrible state of anxiety. They've got lockdown drills in kindergarten. They don't know if a gunman's going to walk into their school. And they've got so many images coming at them. Good and bad. There's a lot of good that comes from TikTok and YouTube as well. It's just about, we're still in the beta phase of knowing iPhones only came out in 2007. Still figuring out truly how it's going to affect our brain development. So I think that 13 Reasons came at a time when we, who had all been really concerned about mental health. Brian Yorkie is my dear friend. We went to college together. Brian and Tom Kitt wrote Next to Normal. Next to Normal was the very first Broadway show that dealt with mental health and mental illness. I had a grandmother who was bipolar and institutionalized. And when Brian told me when we were like 21 years old that he was writing a musical about electroshock therapy, I was like, great idea. 10, 12 years later and many iterations and workshops later with Tom and Brian, the show went to Broadway and got the Pulitzer and 11 Tony nominations. And, and it was groundbreaking. And it was before you could put Broadway on YouTube. And we were the first Broadway show on Twitter. Nobody even had Twitter. I remember signing up for Twitter because I had to follow the next to normal tweets. So we were always ahead of the mental health conversation among teenagers and parents and trying to break the silence in a way. And when we had the opportunity to make 13 Reasons Why and use Selena's voice 
Selena and her mom had fallen in love with this book very early on, and they had it for four or five years before we even became involved. And so I always say those things that really are going to hit and mean something take a long time, and it takes a lot of patience and a lot of courage to get them made. But when Brian and I came on board, we at least had the experience of Next to Normal where Brian had spoken to psychiatrists all the time through all the iterations. And I basically took the Atlantic article about the Palo Alto cluster suicides and called every single person that was spoken about in that article and started gathering all of my consultants for our writer's room very early on. So I had Dr. Rana, who's the head of psychiatry at Stanford, and Dr. Helen Sue, who was at the time in charge of all guidance counselors of Fairfield County. So we were so thoughtful about how we drew this very delicate and painful portrait of what we believed kids were going through. And we also put a writer's room together of people who were really honest about their own suicidal ideation, their loss of a brother or sister, their own battles with addiction. Several of us were sexual assault survivors. This was from soup to nuts. This team of people had been touched by mental health issues, bullying, whatever it was. And so it was painful as all hell when the controversy started. And when people would say, this show is triggering kids or this show is killing kids because we really did everything that we could have possibly done. We built a website so that anyone who was triggered by the material could go to 13reasonswhy.info and get a hotline number of whoever you can call. We did a partnership with Crisis Text Line. We made a documentary where all the psychiatrists who worked on the show talked about it. And what we couldn't possibly quantify, like I said earlier, was the amount of people that we're going to see it at the time. This was before Netflix used to share data. I now know that 500 million people watched that show. That's insane. And at the time, we didn't know that. We're just producers making art for impact and wanting kids to feel seen and heard. And there was so much I learned from that experience because you can't drive audiences to the thing that is good for them. You can't drive audiences to watch the Beyond the Reasons documentary where Selena Gomez and psychiatrists talk to you about mental health. You can't drive people to the thing that is helpful. But I also believe you can't censor the art because if we had not shown the pain that Hannah had gone through and her family was going through, we wouldn't have had an effect on anyone. And the endless letters and DMs and tweets of kids who say, thank you, I will never do this now because of this show. I still have people text and call and say, I was able to tell my sons and my husband that I'm a rape survivor so that they never treat women that way. There was so much important, difficult conversation that was spawned from the show. And it's interesting because now that so many shows are free to do that, I feel Ginny and Georgia, Euphoria, like so many shows are now free to also do this work. And I only hope because all the studies that were done 
Center for Scholars and Storytellers, where I'm on the board, so many people publish these super positive studies about the effects of 13 Reasons Why on kids. And no journalist wants to write anything about that. But two false studies came out that have since been proven false, and they just got covered and covered. People love clickbait. They love bad news. Well, I think that's wonderful because it's being seen and heard. It's bringing things out of the silence. And I think that young people, they can really be like, oh, gosh, this is insurmountable. And they forget. Do you even know yourself until you're 30? Maybe even I'm just figuring out who I am. And that goes on throughout your life. So you have to give yourself the time and give yourself a chance. And there is no such thing as normal. There's an idea of the average. There's a neurotypical or neuroatypical, but there's not really a sense of normal. And so this thing is you Mm -hmm. can feel because other people don't say or speak out, you can feel that you're suffering alone. I just have to say that we none of us know ourselves. I think it's even beyond 30 when you just start to settle into this. I've got my rhythm. We're all just discovering. Nobody really knows anything. We're all just learning. It's true, especially when your brain hasn't been developed. I don't think I really knew until all the research of 13 Reasons Why that the frontal lobe wasn't really developed until you're 25 years old and that these impulses to want to leave, to want to die, to want to not believe that there's a version of staying are very real and too many children are feeling those impulses. We recently met with Matt Rittell, who does the New York Times column about mental health and his great daily episode from September, where he talks about how hormonally our kids, probably because of our crazy food and GMOs and God knows what else, I'm not a scientist, but how hormonally our kids are now going through puberty two, three years earlier developmentally, and yet our brains have not evolved to match what's happening hormonally because the hormonal stuff comes from environmental issues and our brains don't necessarily change in the same way. And so when you look at the spikes in suicide and anxiety and depression, a lot of that is coming from the fact that children are going through puberty earlier and their brains are not ready to process it. And these are things we have to talk about. I think Turning Red was one of the most important movies I've seen in the last 10 years because little girls should watch a movie about getting your period. These are things that can completely change what feels, like you said, normal to a kid and help them push through really, really hard times. I absolutely agree with that. And as somebody who watched 13 Reasons Why with my family and my siblings, I think we all felt fairly impacted and also seen. I love how you said that stories are empathy machines, especially in Hollywood. I think that's very true. And you described the tangible effects of positive and authentic representation that we saw with living single. So I was wondering, what is it that inspires you about certain projects? I can tell based on the way you talk about both Unprisoned and 13 Reasons Why, how passionate you are. And I'm curious what exactly will jump out to you about a certain project and how would you decide what to take on? The first thing is I love people. I mean, I was blessed or cursed with the name Joy. So through my traumatic childhood, I was always jazz handsing and connecting with people. (laughs) And so I'm often drawn to a story because of the person, because it's someone's story. Or I'm drawn to a story like 13 Reasons Why, because I see a white space. I have a ridiculous amount of empathy. I can often feel a sense that 
oh my God, there's so many people who feel like this and they don't know that a bunch of the rest of us feel like this. So that is the nugget of what will bring me to a story. Another thing that draws me to certain stories is a sense of corrective history. Like, could I have a chance to use this big title, like Little House on the Prairie, which I'm developing right now. And when the rights were becoming available, I called all of my friends who were indigenous executives and said, is this harmful or is it not? Is it a crazy idea that maybe we could Trojan horse a more truthful version of Little House on the Prairie that includes the indigenous perspective, that includes the black perspective, or is that crazy? And most of my friends said, I think it's a great idea. And one of the women at Illuminative said, I think it's harmful material. And that was hard. It was hard to make the decision to say, I think we should move forward and do it. But the fact is those books are going to sit in every single school and public library, not only in the United States of America, but all over the world. They are a hundred year old classic, almost 90 years old. And if we have the opportunity to tell a better version of that story and reach those audiences that would normally be banning books, I'm going to try it. I'm going to take that opportunity. And that was one of the things that brought me to Eyes on the Prize, for instance. My love for Eyes on the Prize came from my own personal lived experience. I grew up in Yonkers, New York, which is right outside the Bronx, in a working class area. And there was a very charged desegregation case going on in the late 80s. When I was zero years old, guys, which I forgot, I'm trying to pretend that I wasn't already in middle school in the late 80s. But anyway, HBO did a very cool series about the adult perspective on this, which was called Show Me a Hero that starred Oscar Isaac as the mayor of Yonkers. But I had the unique experience of being the first white girl on my bus route during a desegregation case that was very charged. And I didn't know why these girls hated me. Like, I thought they were so pretty and I just wanted to hang out with them. And then I watched Eyes on the Prize on PBS and I saw the March on Cicero and I saw girls who look just like me with blonde ponytails, Italian and Irish working class girls throwing bricks. And I was like, oh my God, what is this world that we live in? I think in retrospect, that's when I felt content can change hearts and minds. My school was not teaching me that. My school, there were kids having racially charged fights every day and nobody was showing us eyes on the prize in the classroom until like 11th, 12th grade. And so when I became a producer and a grown-up and I said, I'm going to focus on impact, I was like, I'm going to call the rights holders of eyes on the prize and see if there's a way to pick up where Henry Hampton left off or adapted for scripted. And I had those rights for 10, 11 years. And what finally made it really come alive was partnering with Patrice Colors back in 2019, because the difference between that time and now is our activists are storytellers because we can capture so much on our camera phones that I felt like actual activists had to be somewhere at the center of the storytelling. And so that was how Eyes on the Prize became an unscripted series, which we're doing now at HBO, and then Eyes on the Prize Hallowed Ground, an experimental doc with incredibly brilliant directors and having folks who really were at the center of policy change and 
truly at the center of the conversation about race and changing systemic racism in this country was what made that finally become an actual GO project. Yeah, Eyes on the Prize, Hallowed Ground. I believe I read an article that said it focuses more and gives more voice to female, queer, and trans voices in the struggle. And I'd like to hear more about that and the intention behind it and how you incorporated those voices. That really came from Patrice and Sophia. They are queer women who are pure artists. Patrice is just, honestly, she's a marvel of a person and she's been through so much and Patrice once said to me, her predecessors like Martin Luther King died by the time they were her age. They were killed by the time they were her age. And she's here to tell the story of what she was able to do in her 20s and 30s. And it was Patrice who really had the relationships with Ashley Marie Preston and Mervyn Marcano, who was one of our other producers. She was the digital strategist behind the movement for Black Lives. Like they did the boots on the ground work, 13. And so it was really all them putting Prentice Hemphill and these incredible progressive voices at the center of the film, who I just don't think anybody turning on HBO Max would have known those folks. But when you look at it, even Angela Davis is not a huge voice in it. It's centered mostly on the men of the period, some of the women, but nobody queer. And so we felt like it's super important to put queer voices at the center of the narrative. And now we're doing the six-part series on HBO, which Dawn Porter is executive producing. She is just such a brilliant and wonderful doc filmmaker and former journalist. And she did the John Lewis documentary. So she was his very last interview. And so we'll see how that one turns out. We fully deliver that one in June. So we're not sure when it comes out, but maybe early next year or end of this year. Joy's belief in storytelling as an empathy machine intrigues me. Especially with film and TV as mediums, Joy is able to reach a lot of people and inspire them to think. My personal interest is in creative writing, which has that same valuable effect of transporting people outside of their own situations and into other people's shoes for a while, or in many cases, making people feel seen, heard, and understood. In that regard, I really value Joy's perspective on the power of fiction to convey important realities. It has often been said that fiction can portray truths even deeper than the ones on the surface of reality. In Tim O'Brien's words, there's story truth and happening truth. I think the power and opportunity coming from story truth is really evident in the ways Unprisoned adapts the life of Tracy McMillan to enable it to show even more wide-reaching aspects of the experience of families touched by incarceration. With Edwin coming to live with Paige and Finn, for instance, fiction is able to create the circumstances for issues of incarceration, family, and generational trauma to come through in a more intense way. Storytelling, really, and basing fictions creatively upon reality, provides an incredible opportunity to bring forward the aspects and truths of life which often rest unacknowledged beneath the surface. Joy's work uses film and television as a medium to portray serious issues which aren't talked about enough in our society, and I really think there is no more wide-reaching way to spread a message and start conversations than a popular television show. For instance, 13 Reasons Why undeniably sparked a worldwide conversation and debate about teen mental health and paved the pathway for newer television shows to tread that same previously taboo content. Unprisoned, I hope, will do the same thing on an equally important topic. As Joy mentions, the statistics regarding incarceration and foster care in America are staggering. 
with 50% of families impacted by imprisonment. She also gives us the disturbing statistic that 80% of males who grow up in foster care will end up incarcerated at some point in their lives. These two broken systems feeding off of each other have caused a lot of suffering to a lot of people. Incarceration is a topic relevant to many, yet it hasn't been talked about much by Hollywood, and I am excited by the possibilities that come along both with Unprisoned itself and the opportunities and interests it will open up for future shows and movies to deal with the same topic. Another aspect of Unprisoned which feels special to me is the way it chooses to take a positive approach to an issue with a lot of darkness surrounding it, providing a realistic but also hopeful perspective on what it takes to leave prison and re-enter society. I especially value the way the show uses the character of Edwin to highlight the possibilities of all a formerly incarcerated person can become. Ultimately, something that really struck me from this interview is the power for change that film and television holds, shown most strikingly by the story of Living Single and how it inspired so many black women to attend historically black colleges and to become lawyers. Representation matters, stories matter, and empathy matters, and I'm excited for the possibilities of meaningful conversation and change which Joy's work opens up. And now back to the interview. Speaking of impact-driven content that you're producing, your Joy Coalition, I'm curious to know how that works and how you've teamed up with policy experts and philanthropic organizations. With Eyes, it was pretty direct. It was the summer of 2020, and we went out and sold the show with the co-founder of Black Lives Matter. So that was a very direct relationship on something like on prison because it's a life story. We didn't need a full-time consultant for Paige's character because Tracy was writing the show. But I mentioned earlier, Louis L. Reed was working at Reform Alliance and now at Dream Corps under Van Jones. He worked with Delroy on his character. And now we are putting together actually an unscripted series that will highlight actual re-entering citizens and bring the world to real Edwins. Lewis will help us source who those folks will be in the short form scripted series. And right now we're shopping it and looking for a brand to underwrite it. But we have a lot of interest and we know we're going to make it. We want to use our platform to then highlight real re-entering citizens, some of what they're actually going through. And we may even have them with that first phone out of prison document some of their own milestone moments in those first couple of months out. When you do that hand in hand with people like Lewis, who've already affected policy, helped pass the First Step Act and done a lot of this work, basically we source the right partner so we can be part of something. Another friend who is in love with the show and we're talking about figuring out how to help amplify his work is Sixto Cancel, who's the CEO of Think of Us. Think of Us is a tremendous foster care reform organization. Sixto is only, I think, 30 years old. He grew up in foster care. He has a beautiful op-ed in the New York Times about how he wasn't placed with kin. And as an adult, he found out that there were like 20 cousins who would have taken him. And so he's devoted his life and works really closely with the White House. He's devoted his life to figuring out how to help children in foster care be placed with kin that are safe and loving. And so he's someone that is in love with our show. And we want to figure out how to use the platform of the show to amplify that work. And then on other shows, I'm about to close the rights on a very big book that I can't talk about yet. But 
before I even reached out to look at getting the rights, I spoke to Dr. Christine Moutier, head of American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, chief medical officer, to say, this is a difficult book. It's one of the foremost books in mental health. Should I do it? And if I do it, will you do it with me so that we can figure out exactly in a marketing campaign how to marry your work with our storytelling? And so those are some of the different ways that Joy Coalition just tries to partner with orgs early on so that their work informs the storytelling and the storytelling informs their work. Yeah. And as I see a through line with your different projects, another one, Home Before Dark, directed by John M. Chu. Again, there's these resilient characters, true story of that nine-year-old journalist who they're, I won't want to say parenting themselves, but they're taking responsible roles at that early age. It takes great courage, particularly when people might be doubting one. We all have to do that in our own ways, but when we have to do it so young, it's inspiring. What drew me to Hildy was I was in the audience at the Tribeca Film Festival with our film, The Meddler, and she got an award. This nine-year-old gets up and got an award because this video went viral. And it was just at the beginning of that conversation around fake news and Trump sort of discrediting all journalists and then also all the clickbait that was going on. And it was like the beginning of the social dilemma. We have no idea what's true. It's coming at us. And to hear out of the mouth of a nine-year-old that she believes in the First Amendment and she's here to defend the truth, it was like this pure clarion call from out of the mouths of babes that this child could be the solution if we could create that CSI effect around journalism for young women like Hildy and have kids feel like they can shape the truth and protect the truth. That was what drew me to that story. I think people shy away from young girl protagonists. They immediately put you in a box that's like Nickelodeon and Kitty and with both 13 Reasons and Home Before Dark, we had those challenges. And that's why I was like, well, Pulitzer Prize winner is going to write it. And then an Oscar winner named Tom McCarthy is going to direct it after Spotlight. And John Chu and Dana Fox, the writer of Cruella and the director of In the Heights, are going to create and direct this one. And you have to trick people to realizing that a child is a worthy protagonist. And to me, it mirrors how we've treated them in the world. Like we're leaving them a mess and you don't want to take them seriously at the center of a story sometimes. We were very lucky to get two seasons of Home Before Dark and I loved working with Apple. It was so much fun. It was just one of the greatest experiences of my career, but both seasons came out during the pandemic. You couldn't really get traction and it wasn't a huge marketing campaign, but people who find it love it so much. and. Even with the Hildy story, we started to look at how her obsession with journalism and the truth was affecting her mental health. We started to look at that during season two. And then in season two, she deals with her first great loss. She loses her grandfather. We look at Alzheimer's and losing a loved one. And these are things that I think are just so important that kids will have better tools Families will have better tools to deal with these things that will inevitably happen to you if you get to watch it on a TV show first. I was a latchkey kid, and the days my grandma couldn't take me, 
Oprah had me. So I learned so much from watching television about who you want to be and who you can be. And I think that's why I love finding real people like Hildy, like Tracy McMillan, and getting to fictionalize their stories, but capture the essence of them for an audience to feel connected to. It makes me reflect on what the young Joy was like. Who was the nine-year-old Joy? You mentioned your grandparents, so I know you were partly raised by your grandparents. It seems like you must have been a storyteller from the beginning. And when did you decide you wanted to make your home in the arts and this is how you would make change in the world? Well, you know, my mom, my parents were divorced when I was really young and I was sick as a baby. So I think they called me Joy because they were worried when I was born that I wasn't going to survive. And I did. And so I think there was always this part of me that was like, I'm so lucky to be, I gotta make the best of it. We were in a very Catholic Italian kind of working class town. And my grandma and grandpa were incredibly active in the community and popular and fun to be around. And I was always a little bit of an old soul. I loved George and Gracie and Make Room for Daddy. I watched things with my grandparents and I read books with my grandmother. And my mother was obsessed with Sarn Time and Neil Simon and made me read the arts and leisure section of the New York Times and circle the Ninas and the Hirschfelds. And she took me to standing room only Broadway shows for $5. And she held me during a chorus line. So the lyrics I was singing when I was four years old were very inappropriate. We did community theater and my mom had this incredible network of gorgeous gay men who would drink coffee and eat biscotti and listen to show tunes in my tiny one-bedroom apartment. And I still think about my mom's friend, Bobby Cipolla, who died when I was nine. They all started dying of AIDS in the 80s. And it was really, really painful for my mother because that wasn't even a time where any of these guys could be out to their families. And I think that I was surrounded by storytellers and hams and charming, charismatic people who sang beautifully. I still can hear my mom's friend, Bobby Cipolla's voice. I hear him playing the leading player in Pippin in our community theater production of Pippin. And my sisters and I all sang. So we were very theatrical for a bunch of girls who shared a couple of bedrooms and an apartment in Yonkers. But my mother also just always showed us how... New York City was only 10 miles away and like greatness was attainable and you can do fabulous, cool, fun things. You didn't have to be rich to do them. And she would walk me around the Columbia campus and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And we would go to the nosebleed seats to the ballet. And so I think the storytelling came from a combination of that exposure to the arts and closeness to New York City and just my mother being someone who graduated high school in 1959. I was like the baby baby of the family. So she didn't get to indulge in her artistic dreams and fantasies. So she supported us doing that to an extent. Then when you got to college, she was like, no film classes. Be a lawyer. Be a doctor. A little cagey. <laughs> well, you have to have a business in the arts head to make it, obviously. Yeah. But yeah, exactly. Culture is, it can be accessible. It doesn't have 
to cost you can find your way there are those nosebleed seats there are those ways and there's community theater there's so many ways and you've shown that so you're a great example of that and the joy that comes with darkness as well and the challenges so thank you joy gorman weddells for telling stories that need to be told and bringing our challenges and struggles into the light so we can heal love and understand that we are not alone Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you so much, Mia and Claire. I really appreciate your time. This was so nice. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Claire Tolliver with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this episode was Claire Tolliver. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Thank you.